What's going on? This is the Saturday Down South Podcast. I am Connor O'Hara. Well, I was going to do all SEC snubs today, but then a bunch of other things happened in the coaching world. And I was like, ah, let's let's put that on the back burner for now. I'll get to that eventually at some point during the pre-bowl season here. But we got too much relevant stuff to discuss today. Mm-hmm. Mike Elko to Duke, Dan Lanning to Oregon, and Auburn suddenly in shambles. Dabo, I mean, just a lot of things are happening right now in the last week. So that all ties into a bigger picture thing that I want to dig into. We've also got ESPN's Matt Barry coming on in a bit to discuss some coaching carousel stuff. And that's Matt Barry, not Matthew Barry. Don't confuse the two. Um, and then we're going to end with some Christmas songs in figuring it out. Mm-hmm. But before we do that, I want to ask you an honest question here. No judgment either way, I promise. This isn't like, hey, I'm, I'm trying to figure out if you're like a diehard college football fan or something like that. Did you watch the Heisman ceremony? Certainly not. Okay. You know my take, bro. I'm, since I'm a marketing guy, it's like, you got the CFP show, you got the Heisman. This is about 10 minutes of content. Y'all try to stretch me in like two hours for. I got Twitter. <laughs> I know who's for the with the Heisman. It's a list, bro. You're, like, I'm not being mean. Yep. It's a list. You're exactly right. And the first 10 minutes of it were about as cringe as a Christmas story. They were bad, real bad. They did this thing where instead of Fowler getting up there and kind of playing point guard and steering everything in the right direction, they turn it over to Desmond Howard, Tebow, and Robert Griffin III, which was just, it was bad. It was really bad. It was like they sat down in a production meeting and they're like, hey, we want this to be fun. Let's have you guys just get up there and bust balls. Which, in the right setting, maybe could have been okay. I kind of think those three guys are very unique, specific personalities, and that's as nice as I'll be there. But at the Heisman ceremony, where you can literally hear a pin drop, and it seems like the audience is told ahead of time, hey, applause is the only noise you can make, it was just kind of weird. So it just kind of fell on deaf ears, and it was not exactly the most pleasant 10 minutes. We had Desmond Howard take a shot at Ohio State's offensive line and how they couldn't protect CJ Stroud against Agent Aiden Hutchinson, which was yikes. And that's weird because CJ Stroud is just sitting there, like biggest moment of his life on that stage, even though he knows he's not winning and he's a 19 year old kid. And he's like, cool, thanks for that. Right. Like, yeah, my offensive good, line good does shot. suck, buddy. <laughs> can't, can't laugh. That's one of those situations yeah, that if you're sitting there, you gotta just poker face it. Cause if you laugh, it's like, oh, Oh, controversy brewing. Yeah, and meanwhile, Desmond Howard lets out his hysterical laugh to, to, to nothing, really, in the background. But it was just weird. Just weird. The night lacked suspense because we knew Bryce Young was going to win. Mm-hmm. Yet, there were still some people, if you, so, if you searched on social media, they were surprised to see Aiden Hutchinson not win. And I saw some criticize the fact that Bryce Young's Heisman moment, to many, was the 97-yard drive. Like, you know, whatever. Like, if, if that's the thing that you're picking apart, okay, well, let's go to the Georgia game where he lit up the historically best defense that we've seen since 1986. Like, let's, let's do that, all right? Wait, wait, if, wait, if, you're if that's me, really your big There are people point. mad online that a defensive end didn't win the Heisman for the first time since, like, the 40s? Yeah, of, of course. Cool. Yeah. Love it. Awesome. Yeah, no further sure. questions. Yeah. Because we, in the college football world, and the way that the internet works, we need something to pick apart with these things. We can't just be like, oh, hey, cool accomplishment, cool night, clap, move on, everybody move on to the next thing. Bryce Young got sort of picked apart because he said in his acceptance speech that he's been doubted. This is the way the internet works. The Sports Center tweet that made the rounds was this. 
quote, I've always been ruled out and kind of doubted, dot, dot, dot. For me, it's always about not really proving them wrong, but proving to myself what I can accomplish, end quote, or what I, what I can accomplish. So if you saw that quote, you're like, wait a minute, guy. <laughs> you were the number two overall recruit in the country. Mm-hmm. You went to the powerhouse, nationally known high school, and then you signed up to play for the greatest coach of all time. What do you mean you have always been ruled out and doubted? But that quote didn't really show that Young also mentioned, hey, I was an undersized black quarterback and I've dealt with people saying I can't play the position and that I should do something else. And I bet even as a 180 pound recruit who had his pick of the litter, I'm sure there were at least some people who told him, hey, you know, like, is he gonna be able to hold up a year playing in the SEC, the durability thing and all that. And here he was, quarterback, the number one team in the country, healthy, and hoisting the top individual honor in the sport and doing so as a true sophomore. We went over this with the Michael Jordan stuff, all right? Like we collectively, sports Twitter went over this. You take whatever fuel you can get and you internalize it. Right. That's just what you do. It's gotta be a whole lot easier for that to be kind of your mindset instead of listening to everyone tell you you're incredible and that you're destined to win Heisman's, national titles, Super Bowl rings, all those different things. Bryce Young is wired exactly the way that you hope your leader is wired. Mm-hmm. And maybe part of that is having a dad who's a mental health counselor who went to UCLA for that. Maybe that's got something to do with it. Shout I don't mental know. Health. Big mental health podcast out here. Big time. And that's a whole lot different than growing up like Todd Marinovich, oh. who had all those things about people telling him how great he was. But obviously the mental makeup wasn't necessarily prioritized in that family. We know that. It's well, very well documented. Go watch the 30 for 30 on it. It's awesome. I bring this up because I think so many people are taking for granted where Bryce Young is mentally as a 20-year-old who is dominating this sport. We see five-star, Alabama, So we assume that all of that just sort of takes care of itself. And if it doesn't, well, you're surrounded by five stars, so they'll take care of it for you. By the way, not saying Alabama lacks talent by any stretch of the imagination, not saying that. But not a single one of Alabama's top 10 leaders in receptions was a five star. Just throwing that out there, all right? Like something to keep in mind here. That's not really the point of this. What I'll always say is the single most impressive thing about LeBron James is despite the fact that he has the shenanigans and the nicknames, the chosen one, all those different things, the guy had more hype than any NBA draft prospect ever, and he somehow exceeded it. And when he says, just a kid from Akron, we all sort of roll our eyes and are like, yeah, just a kid from Akron who was blessed with a 6'8", 250 pound frame with God-given ability. He just like me. We were all kids like LeBron James one day. (laughs) Right? Like, yeah, such a small minority of human beings can ever dream of having anything anything like that in terms of ability that we're, we're blessed with. Not to say they didn't work hard to achieve everything he's ever had, of course he, he has. But still, like that having that ability and having that in an ability in a sport that rewards players with nine-figure contracts, yeah, it's significant. So when we see Bryce Young say something like, I've always been kind of ruled out and doubted, Our natural instinct is going to tell us that he's the last person who should be saying that because on paper, if there's ever anyone that should have success, it's the five-star Southern California quarterback who goes to Alabama to play for Nick Saban. But what Bryce Young is doing 
is what I think a lot of us, we pencil them in that, that this would be the, the standard that he would live up to. And in my opinion, I think he's actually doing what I didn't really think was possible. He's not only meeting the massive hype that he arrived with, he's exceeding it. And that is so rare in college football. And you can kind of go back through all the recruiting rankings and dig into some of that stuff. And you'll see how many of those guys, either even as number one overall recruits, might have had really good careers, but didn't necessarily live up to that billing. They didn't win a Heisman Trophy. They didn't have this, this path to a national championship in the way that Bryce Young does right now. If Bryce Young has to dial into some sort of MJ-like mentality to get himself to that place, who are we to criticize him for that when none of us will ever know what it's like to have a fraction of those expectations? Will, any other Heisman thoughts? Bryce Young, Aiden Hutchinson, Will Anderson, fire away. Yeah, man. <clears throat> I think you hit the nail on the head with the expectations. Um, well, first off, I think, uh, obviously, shout out Will Anderson. Huge fans of him. Uh, might probably be the best pass rusher in all of college football, so want to give him a little bit of shine. But, yeah, no, I, I think um, you kind of hit the, the nail on the head there. And, and the other side of that, when you talk about being humble, it's like I would much rather just subjectively a guy be fake humble than do what Trevor Lawrence did at the end of his career and just come out and be like, yeah, I know I'm awesome. This stuff's always been kind of easy to be, bro. And then he goes to the Jags, and, you know, he has, like, what, 10 touchdowns and nine picks, and it's like, then you get slandered. So it's like, you got to at least act like, you know what I'm saying, you you aren't above everyone if you're on this stage. And so I think, I think Bryce Young has handled himself very, very well. And I think, you know, people who are saying this is easy, I mean, first off, we know this, you know, if you ever want to really see how mean people are take something you love something you do put it out there on the internet someone will hate you for no reason and like oh, yeah that's the thing about bryce young is that the, the whole time he has come in here he has had a target on his back i mean his leading receiver got a, got a targeting penalty speaking of targets uh, and and so point being like at every step of the way it seems like he was going to be like mac or tua but so many of the pieces changed around him and i'm a guy who's just like i said Never accused me of Bama fatigue. I've always been, like, I'm an LSU fan. I've naturally always been a little bit of an Alabama hater, but Bryce Young has proven to me in a way that those other guys didn't, that he deserved the Heisman and that he has put this team on his back. You know, we started off the year talking about Bill O'Brien and these weapons and how things just weren't the same on the Alabama offense. And now you look back at this year and you'd be like, ha! Huh. <laughs> 40, 40, how many touchdowns? You, you like look at his numbers and, and we said it kind of mid-season. We were like, this doesn't fit the conversation. And so at the end of the day, it's like Bryce Young was never playing against himself. Number one, he was playing against the Times' offensive line as coordinator. And sometimes, and he was playing against the ghost of Alabama QB's past. He was playing against, oh, yeah. well, Tua didn't win this. Mac didn't win this. So you got to be way better than them to win this award. Good. And I think there's also a part of that where what is the most popular time that a college football fan tunes into an Alabama game? When they're losing. When Alabama's on the ropes. Yep. Exactly. And in those moments this year, which there have been more of than there have been in years past, mm -hmm. there have been these droughts that we didn't see necessarily with Mac. We saw him a little bit with, with Tua at points when he saw there were the numbers about him facing elite defenses in 2018 and, and how those numbers dipped. And he actually, you kind of look back at like 2019, he was better, but he of course had the injury shortened season. But with Bryce Young, I think that's why some people were a little bit underwhelmed because they would tune into LSU and they would be like, wait a minute, this is, this is what we're, 
this is what we're getting all crazy about, they tune into the second half of the Auburn game and they'd have to wait until the final minute of regulation to see him do something that just made you say, wow. And so the people that are anti Bryce Young are looking at it from that standpoint. And there'll, there'll be people who say like, oh, I watched him play. I don't really think he was as impressive as, as the guys who came before him. I guarantee you that's in their mind, whether they want to admit it or not. And that, I guess, is part of it. But to me, it shouldn't take away from the very basic fact that he came in with sky-high expectations and has already exceeded them. Yep, yep. So yeah, shout out Bryce Young. He's been awesome. He's been humble. And he's filled these shoes that were seemingly unfillable in situations. And like I said, man, I understand if you're an average SEC fan, you're you're going to say, like we were talking about, of course, Bam has a cruise. Of course, they have all Watch these moments we're talking about and really... Tell yourself, Bryce Young had it easy this year. <laughs> that's all I, oh, I know. That's all I can tell like, you. Not, not in the same way that we, we've expected. Yeah. And from the protection standpoint and all those different things, pre-Georgia, the protection issues and all those different things that were kind of, felt like they were working against him. And nobody's really going to, nobody's going to say Bryce Young overcame certain things. Right. That, that's my point. It's nobody's ever going to say that, but he has still found ways to, to succeed and surpass those expectations. My uh, my preseason PSA okay. that I'll do again. I'll do again. So if, if this kind of slips to the back of your mind, there's a lot going on in college football right now. So it's totally understandable if it does. But I always got to get out ahead of this and, and just tell the people in case you get a little too excited. I know my uh, my friends don't let friends bet on preseason Heisman favorites might have taken a slight hit on Saturday night because Bryce Young was tied for third in the preseason odds. Mm-hmm. But... The trend since 2009 continues. Still just one player as a preseason top two candidate went on to win the Heisman Trophy, which was Marcus Mariota 2014. That sets me up for this next trivia question, courtesy of my buddy, Andrew Doty. Andrew had this on Twitter. I'm curious if you saw this as well. Um, Since 2006, only one player has won the Heisman Trophy after a top 10 finish in the Heisman the previous season. Will, do you know who that was? Since 2006. Um, Hold on. You said it was It's not Mariota. Not Mariota. So since 2006, Mm -hmm. only one player has won the Heisman Trophy after a top 10 finish in the Heisman voting the previous season. I'm going to just throw a guess off the wall and say Troy Smith. Not a bad guess. But not quite, okay. because we're going. I think because that would exclude him, because technically that started in two thousand five. Oh yeah. I think, so that would take. But I, I think that's where the cutoff would be. Yeah. Like if you went back fifteen years instead of fourteen or whatever yeah. it is. We'll understand the question him. challenge. Anyway, who's the answer? Yes. <laughs> answer is Baker Mayfield. Oh yeah, his color screw is so, weird to me, man. Like just just to be honest, like. I'm such, I'm such a hater, bro. Like, I look at his whole career and I'm just like, ah, like it all kind of blends together. I need to be more positive because his whole career, I just feel like his whole career to me is like, I watched like, I watched a lot of football back then. I only watched like five or six of his games because it was all just blowouts. Like we were talking about, I can't separate his two seasons. That's my own fault. Peak Baker was great. Man. Yeah, it, it was really fun. was. It was fun. Like, you see some of the things that he, he would do and he gets, of course... Back in the day, everybody's going to talk about the the Kansas game with the the grab of a certain body part and what he did in Columbus. Mm-hmm. But Peak Baker, man, Peak Baker was he was a time. So what that sets me up for is preseason Heisman favorites. I bet they're going to be these three guys in order, and they're going to be far and away the favorites ahead of everyone else because they are 
probably the only guys in the top 10 of the voting who are going to be coming back next year. Bryce Young, Will Anderson, CJ Stroud. That's, am I like, barring something crazy here, they're the only top 10 finishers who are going to be back. They're going to be Heisman favorites, and people are going to be talking about them. Oh my gosh, what are their Heisman chances? What are their Heisman chances? But mm -hmm. remember that number. Remember that number because it is just so rare. And as we talk about exceeding expectations, maybe that's the next way Bryce Young is going to defy logic and exceed expectations by winning the Heisman back to back or something like that. Because naturally, everybody has already gone to that place. Real quick, speaking, I would speaking tend of to expectations at that point, it's like you look at Tua's career, man, where he comes in the second half of that Georgia game and wins the game. That was pretty much the height of his college football career. And everything he did to that after that moment was living up to that. And so as as we talked about the expectations of Bryce Young, everything he's overcome to this point, from here on out, the haters only get louder. And you hate that for him, you know, because it's like, well, you already won the Heisman in year one. What are you going to do in year two or year three? It's like, man, I just wish we were more positive in the sport. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I would say that's – it's a fair point. Um, I think you could point to a couple of different – spots into his career and say it was like apex mountain to borrow a phrase from bill simmons you could point to you could point to lsu and and the especially that run that he had that game that was that was pretty cool mm -hmm. um then he like hurt himself running in the end zone or something like that but you could look at that game you could look at beating kyler murray in the semifinal to get to the championship because obviously the national championship against clemson was not a high point in his career but i I think those moments would still all be probably better than any that he had in 2019 because he had the LSU loss, of course, and then the injury mm -hmm. and whatnot. But yeah, a lot of people are already wondering where does Bryce Young belong in that pantheon of Alabama quarterbacks between the likes of Tua and Mac Jones and, and how do we factor in the longevity of A.J. McCarron and stuff like that. And it's, it's TBD because it's one year. It's one year. I'm just saying I appreciate the dude, because odds are, like you said, he's not going to win a second Heisman, which I mean, like one guy's Probably ever done not. that. You know what I'm saying? But it's not like, oh, you want a Heisman? Like, I, I can already hear the take starting to form. Like, when he's, you know, right. next year, it's like, oh, well, you know. What, he, he's going to have to win. He's going to have to score 60 touchdowns. Exactly, because now, like, the hater age is so strong, he'd have to throw for, like, 50 touchdowns to do so much better than that year, because he already has a Heisman. It's like, you're already, I'm just saying, you know, like, credit yeah. to this kid. He's just, he's just fun. Whatever. He's awesome. He's awesome. And, that, that'll continue to be the case at least for another year or so, we expect. So basically, since we recorded the other day, I found myself saying this certain phrase a lot oh boy. the last four days or so. We're going to find out a lot. <laughs> Those words. We're going to find out a lot. I guess you could apply that to bowl opt-outs with a guy like KJ Jefferson, who will be without Traylon Burks for the first time. Of course, that news broke right after we recorded. I had Dan, our producer, go in there and take out the part where I said I'd be surprised if Burks played in the bowl game. But anyways, so many of these personnel shakeups have me saying those words. We're gonna find out a lot. Mm -hmm. Let's start with the news that broke on Friday night. Mike Elko, Texas A&M defensive coordinator, accepts the job to become Duke's next head coach. If you've been listening to this podcast for a bit, you've heard a whole lot of praise for Elko and the job that he's done as Jimbo's defensive coordinator for four years and really doing so um, at a place where I think A&M historically from a defensive standpoint we kind of forget how bad they were like individual talent yep. was one thing but having a unit from top to bottom that could really go out and win a big sec game well i, I think a and m just lacked that before of course jimbo fisher goes to brian kelly staff at notre dame and poaches mike elko 
Four years it took for Mike Elko to get that Power 5 job. He was linked at places like Kansas and whatnot, just hadn't necessarily worked out. But Mike Elko is leaving to go to Duke. And so now we're going to find out a lot about Elko leading a program because he was darn good leading a defense. But we're also going to have more appreciation for AM's defense in a few years when we look up and realize how many of these dudes are legit NFL players. Elko did the defensive coordinator thing at three different Power 5 programs, and he elevated every one of them. I said before the start of the season that I expected him to look for that next opportunity after this year because of how good I expected the defense to be, and also because his son was going to be going to college on a baseball scholarship at Northwestern. Shout out to him. So the timing of it just kind of made sense. What's crazy, and what gets me back to the original topic here, is that this is the first coordinator change for Jimbo at AM. He's finishing year four. Mm-hmm. That is very, very rare. During that same stretch, Saban had three different offensive coordinators, and I guess four if you want to include Josh Gaddis in that role, but we don't really need to go back down that road about how much he did with calling plays compared to Mike Loxley. That was sort of a dividing point between those two. This is the first time at AM that Fisher is dealing with a change at coordinator. And as of this recording, we don't know who will replace Mike Elko just yet. But for Jimbo, one of the nice things about having a guy like Elko, who makes north of $2 million a year in that role, and being him being one of the top defensive minds in the sport, is that Jimbo didn't have to micromanage the defense and, and, and have more stretched be stretched even thinner than he probably already was being a head coach at a major program like texas a&m oh, jimbo was getting carried by the defense for most weeks honestly i mean a lot of times he did he did this year especially with the backup quarterback we saw that play out even more jimbo's hoping that he can have that same exact dynamic with his new coordinator who is likely going to get a whole lot of money i mean there's there's really not a whole lot of debate about that AM usually is in position to drop the bag pretty unlimited resources there would expect nothing different with that hire but there's no guarantee that that happens so we're going to find out a lot about just how well Jimbo can function at AM without Mike Elko. We're also gonna find out a lot about Dan Lanning. Chip Towers of the AJC reported on Saturday that Lanning had the Oregon job, but then a bunch of other reports came out that nothing was official, everyone kind of dunked on him. Then it came out on Sunday that he was indeed taking the Oregon job, but staying with Georgia through the college football playoff. We're probably owed chip a little bit of an apology whatever the case may be um the deal wasn't official maybe he jumped the gun whatever the case dan lanning georgia defensive coordinator head coach at oregon we're gonna find out if lanning is capable of following in kirby's footsteps what do i mean by that dan lanning like kirby was one of the top defensive coordinators in the sport working at a powerhouse program but not with total autonomy Mm -hmm. that's a big big word in this coaching cycle Autonomy. It's a big word in general. Tommy Reese, right? <laughs> I can barely spell it. I had to use spell check three different times. <laughs> Tommy Reese brought it up with uh, with Ryan Russillo talking about why he stayed at Notre Dame instead of being Brian Kelly's offensive coordinator at LSU. Mm-hmm. Autonomy is something that Jeff Levy will now have at Oklahoma. Instead of it being Levy and Lane's offense like it was at Ole Miss, Levy is going to a place where he knows Brent Venables, the Clemson defensive coordinator. He is 
going to be the head coach at Oklahoma, and Levy is going to get total autonomy on the offensive side of the ball. That's his deal. Venables will take care of the defense. Levy takes care of the offense. We're going to find out a lot about Lane and his offense without Levy, and we're going to find out a lot about Levy and his offense without Lane or Heupel. But back to Lanning. Lanning, like Kirby, became a first-time head coach at an elite program. I always bring up the fact that Kirby's 28th career game as a head coach was in a national championship. Saban's 28th career game as a head coach was an early October game in a battle of unranked teams between Michigan State and Iowa. All right, you can, you can close your eyes and picture how gray it was on that day. I guarantee you there was 50 degrees, maybe a little bit colder. There was not, the sun was not in the sky. You can rule that idea out. I didn't go back and look at the pictures. I guarantee you that was the case. Mm -hmm. And not a whole lot of people probably cared about that day 25 years ago. Nobody cared about that when Kirby got totally outcoached in the national championship. And Saban, ironically enough, made the right adjustments that Kirby couldn't. I'm not saying that Dan Lanning is going to be coaching in a national championship in his 28th game as a head coach. I'd suggest probably take the over on that. But that has become a pressure-packed job. And because of who he's replacing, we're going to find out a lot about if he can do at least some of the things that Kirby did as a first-time head coach at Georgia. Is he going to instantly walk in and elevate the talent level at Oregon? Is he going to know how to handle quarterback decisions? Kirby, eh, not so much. Is he gonna get skewered for his in-game decision-making? We don't know. I'm pumped to see Dan Lanning at a, at a big-time job. I think that's gonna be great for the sport. And yes, I am obviously very excited about Oregon and Georgia opening the 2022 season against each other in Atlanta. We're gonna have Gary Stoken on in a couple of weeks here to talk Peach Bowl. We're gonna have to spin forward and look to that one a little bit, considering the way that his game is shaping up this year. We're also going to find out a lot about Will Muschamp, who... Buddy, do I know with, so much about the Will yeah. Muschamp already? <laughs> I wish I knew less about Will Muschamp. Okay, let's let's say this. We're going to find out a whole lot about stage three Will Muschamp. He's like because a Pokemon. One, he started off and he's evolved into <laughs> final four Muschamp. Right? We're, so he, along with Glenn Schumann, is, they, they have this co-DC title mm -hmm. to replace Lanning. Is Muschamp going to shine back in the role where uh, typically he's been at his best in his career? Of course, he was not at his best as a head coach because it really wasn't long ago that we asked all of those similar questions that I just brought up that we we're asking them about Muschamp when he ultimately left the teat of Saban to get his first head coaching gig at a big time job. Muschamp as a defensive coordinator feels like it's where he's meant to be, but we'll see. We're gonna find out a lot about Brian Hartson in the next few weeks. Welcome to the SEC guy. About, I don't know, what is it, six weeks ago? We're talking about you as a possible SEC coach of the year. Mm -hmm. You got a narrow path to the playoff. On top of that, you had us praising your coordinator hires and the buttons you pushed with your much scrutinized starting quarterback decision. To borrow a quote from Michael Scott, how the turntables, and then just trail off like Auburn season did. Wow. You are just trying to crack me up. Did you just say the teat of Saban and just keep moving? I'm sorry. That is one of the funniest did, things you've ever said on here. That was a good <laughs> metaphor. Anyway, back to Brian Harson and whatever he's got going on over there.
Brian Harson now, this is what he's got going on. He's the coach of a 6-6 six six team, having lost four straight to end the regular season. He fired Mike Bobo, who failed to score a touchdown in the third or fourth quarter in each of Auburn's final five games. That's, that's right. That's a real thing. And I say third or fourth quarter instead of second half because Auburn scored touchdowns in overtime against Alabama. But other than that, no touchdowns in the third or fourth quarter since the Arkansas game. It's middle of October, man. How do you do that? I have no idea. That blows me away. So Harson lost on the big coordinator hire that he made. He poached Mike Bobo from South Carolina. Didn't work out necessarily to his liking. Sunday night, we find out, not necessarily as a surprise, but it is news that Bo Nix has entered the transfer portal. Worst kept secret, now a reality. We're going to find out a lot about what Bo Nix looks like away from the place that he's been associated with since birth, really. I mean, the day that he is in associated with Auburn is going to be a weird day for a lot of people very close to him. We're also going to find out what in the world Brian Harson does at quarterback because TJ Finley did not exactly look like the answer. And D Davis was a true freshman this season. He did not play a snap. So does Brian Harson dip back into the portal again, like he did with Finley. Uh, he's got a four-star true freshman coming in, but Harson doesn't exactly come off as start the true freshman guy. He just doesn't. And he wasn't that if you even want to go back to Boise State and uh, he had Brett Rippon who stepped in as the second highest rated recruit in program history. And Harson's like, nah, give me the third year guy until he gets hurt. The third year guy was Ryan Finley, so it wasn't like he was totally crazy for doing that. But, you know, history suggests that Harson is a little bit more traditional and he's ideally he'd like to be able to groom his quarterbacks along. I don't know that you're going to have that option because this ain't Boise State. This is Auburn, where one bad month in the SEC West can totally flip your program and that vision that you once had can go up in smoke. Like I'm sure when Brian Harson took over, he told himself, sweet, I've got two years of Tank Bigsby to rebuild this offense around, which means even if Bo Nix doesn't work out, at least I've got this stud tailback. Surprise. <sighs> About that. On3 reported that Tank is expected to enter the transfer portal. Maybe we'll have more clarity on that by the time that this comes out. We heard rumblings of this a few weeks ago, and I've been saying this for a little while, that if you watched his body language in some of these games, man, he did not look happy, and I can't say that I blame him given what his usage was like in some of these key spots, not just the overall volume of it. It's one thing to have roster turnover when you're first hired, right? Brian Kelly, Billy Napier, they're kind of dealing with that right now, but it's another to have key pieces give you a year and then basically just decide at the end of the year, nah, I'm gonna go find somewhere else to play. Mm -hmm. We're gonna find out a lot about Brian Harson and his ability to hold a program together because he's not exactly gonna be a hope merchant. Well, that's hope the merchant. Like to say. Yeah, it's kind of hard, kind of hard if you're an Auburn fan to be a hope merchant. They did just steal a yeah. uh, recruit from LSU today, though. Somehow, so true. <laughs> Nothing's worse. He's, and that's their highest rated recruit. But at the same time, like Auburn has signed multiple top 100 recruits every year since 2004. I don't think they're gonna sign one mm -hmm. early signing period. There's your early signing period preview. We're gonna talk a little bit more about that in the midweek pod as well. So that's all taken into consideration as Auburn fans think about this future with Brian Harson. And if he does end up having the worst Auburn recruiting class since 2004, what would that say? 
on the bright side, and I hate to bring this up already, I hate to do this, but it's gonna be asked. The buyout number after year two is 15 million bucks. You are a menace, Connor. <laughs> a menace. At Auburn, that's not that bad. That's not that bad, 15 million bucks, come on. Gus got 23, mm -hmm. they can do 15, what's that? Come on, Muschamp almost got that from South Carolina, they can make that work, whatever. It's almost $40 million in buyouts, no. If it heads in this direction though, people are gonna wonder. And at least that deal is a little bit more friend, uh, friendly than, than Gus's was um, in the early stages of it. But he's gonna be on a whole lot of hot seats. So we're gonna find out a lot about Brian Harson. Real quick, you know, you really gotta respect Bo Nix's um, decision to transfer here because if he had just got some play time, man, he probably could have figured it out. You know, if he had just gotten like a new offensive coordinator or like a new coach, like a new scheme, maybe just a couple more games, he would have just been right there, man, come on. I'll say this. <laughs> and we've been critical of Bo Nix, I think fairly so. I don't think I've necessarily brushed him off in the way that, that some have, and I was willing to admit this year that he was playing the best football of his career. He did play like the best version of himself under Mike Bobo. Yeah, he was actually really good this year. Like I'm laughing because him transferring is hinting that he's not getting an opportunity. But yes, he was actually, this is his best year, I think by, by far almost. He was all right. And he'll have his fourth offensive coordinator in as many seasons. And that will be talked about ad nauseum wherever he ends up. <laughs> Make no mistake about that. Get ready for that storyline a whole lot. A lot of Jared Garantano vibes, like I was saying before. The person that we're really we're really gonna find out a lot about. Oh yeah. Dabo. Dabo is the living embodiment of the Fresh Prince meme with Will Smith standing alone in the empty living room. Mm -hmm. Except because it's Clemson, I suppose we need someone to Photoshop in the slide. Get the slide in the background of the living room. It's like all they're Dabo. known for is Dabo in the slide. <laughs> now, right? yeah, now it's like all the QBs we know are gone. We got DJ Uyunglele and the slide. That's kind of it, man. Look at that pronunciation by you. Dang, man. You learned. You learned after you kind of flamed out, but mm -hmm. you learned nonetheless. That's all that matters. Yeah, they, you got the rock. You got the slide. You know, this is this is the type of stuff that that people are are going to be looking at Dabo and saying, hey, what's what's next? Because. You know, Dabo just has worst season in seven years, and he lost both his coordinators and his athletic director. Brent Venables had been there for the last 10 seasons, and Tony Elliott, who got the Virginia job, had been on Dabo's staff for the last 11 seasons, and he was the primary play caller for the last seven years. Basically, ever since Clemson's been good, it's been with Tony Elliott as the main play caller. Mm -hmm. Now everything is changing around Dabo. If Dabo really is one of the great coaches in the sports history, this time right now will be an afterthought in three years. Because if you're gonna be in the same breath as Saban, which let's not forget a few short years ago, after 2018, Clemson wins the national championship dominant fashion, a whole lot of people saying Dabo is the best coach in the sport. Look, if you are, and if you're on that level, which I'm not saying he is right now at all, but these are the types of punches that you have to roll with. And we're gonna find out if he can really roll with that. Whether Dabo likes it or not, you're not supposed to have stability like that in this sport. We can talk all the time about this Clemson culture and how special it is, it's kind of cult-like in my opinion. But just like you know, he got a little bit over a decade ago, Brent Venables and Tony Elliott, they, they wanted to be the leader. They, they wanted a chance for total autonomy. They're gonna bring up that word again, mm -hmm. of their respective programs. 
Well, we're going to find out a lot about Dabo as the leader and as the common denominator of Clemson's success. The offense, it needs, a, it needs a rebuild because there's not a Deshaun Watson or a Trevor Lawrence waiting to go turn that thing over to. They had major, major problems this year. And I know they ended up finishing like, they had a rally to finish like 78th in the country in scoring. It was bad. It was really, really bad. And so you're asking these questions and you're like, all right, well, you got to bring somebody in that can, that can make these changes because the standard is so high at Clemson and everything gets picked apart. And it was so weird to watch DJ Will, last name? Uyunglele. Crushed it. Let's go. Look at you. Dang, man. Aced it. It was so weird to watch him struggle because of what we now expect at Clemson. And there's just no guarantee that Dabo is going to hire someone who's going to fit at such a unique place. There's no guarantee that this era of Clemson football from 2015 to 2020, what we just saw, it might not look like what we see the next five years. Chances are that it won't. It's weird to say that Dabo, someone who has multiple rings, has something to prove. And Lord knows if you ever framed a question that way to Dabo, he would tell you he's got nothing to prove. Please, <laughs> Connor, please so frame that question to Dabo. Send him an email. I'm a, I'm a punt on that one for a little <laughs> bit here. But this is a defining time for him. And he hasn't exactly been known as a guy who handles change in the sport very well with NIL, playoff expansion, there was already a whole lot of change going on that you got the sense Dabo was kind of resisting, but now he faces more change than ever. Will, fire away on any individual piece of that. I know that was a lot of different stuff that we hit man, on. Man, I'm loving these little like thought pieces. Like, these are cool, man. Um, yeah, I'd say, uh, first off, real quick, starting with Georgia, um, I know it's easy to meme Kirby, man. I know it really is, just in the games against Alabama, the SEC West thing, you know what I'm saying? But ultimately, like when you talk about the 28th um, game in his career, I mean, the way he has built up Georgia to be what they are today with recruiting, with these staff changes, it's not an accident. And I think that we grade him at such this high standard because Georgia hasn't won in a while. We all understand that. But if you're watching the Alabama game and you're kind of like a Georgia hater and you're just like, ah, see, like, da, da, da. it's like, dude, every program in America other than pretty much Alabama or maybe like Clemson, I can't even say that anymore now, would be thrilled to be in the position that Georgia is in and wasn't. And listen, getting your brains beat out by Alabama not something to be ashamed of. I'm an LSU fan. As I keep saying, I saw 10 years of it. And so at the end of the day, good for them. And where I was going with that is the way they've set up that staff. Um, we shouted out um, Coach Boom, but also Glenn Schumann, really great mind around the sport. A lot of people have said great things about him, great recruiter. So if he can keep both of those guys home, or honestly even one of them during this crazy coaching cycle, I think George is going to be fine. Like you said, their defense has always been a staple coming off of that. So good for Dan Lanning. Um, going to the Clemson thing, I, like you said, I think that's the most fascinating thing that's going on right now um you know if <laughs> there, we've talked about the archetypes of the coaches right you got your ceo you got your play caller you got all these different guys and this is kind of a downside to get the ceo type coach like Dabo, right because if you have all right people get this example or whatever if you have um like mullen right worst case scenario you know you have a good play caller like worst case scenario everything else kind of caught on fire around him but you know you have a good play caller with Dabo. You don't really have that. You don't really have something that Dabo, he's really good at being angry. Uh, do you agree with that, Connor? Yeah. No, and I've gone back and forth on this because I've kind of wanted to do this breakdown, and maybe this will be an off-season pod, of the amount of coaches who started off as play callers at their respective programs mm -hmm. and then transitioned out of it to be the CEO of their program. And I, I think you look at a situation like Urban, 
where Urban wasn't calling plays for the vast majority of his time as a successful head coach. Mm-hmm. And especially during those later years at Ohio State where he just turned it over to Ryan Day. Yep. I mean, Ryan Day had to come in and fix a program that got shut out by Clemson in the semifinal. And it was up to Ryan Day and Kevin Wilson as well, former Indiana coach who didn't exactly the best ending there, to be able to, to modernize their offense. But you're right in that you feel like your floor is higher. Are we sure, are we absolutely positive this year was Clemson's floor? That is going to be an, a really interesting question. And I am suddenly way more interested in Clemson. I know we just talked about how everybody tunes in when Alabama's on the ropes and, oh, what's Bryce Young going to do in this game where it's a one-score game in the fourth quarter? I now find myself very, very interested in Clemson's future because we're not used to seeing a five-year stretch of dominance like the one that Clemson had. Mm-hmm. And now, how do you get back to the level? Because that's what, that's what fans are gonna be asking about. And how does that impact Dabo's future? And does this kind of like, does this thing wear out? We just don't know. And there are so many things with Clemson that we could, probably could have just taken for granted since they've gotten to this level of success that I think now we're getting back to asking some of those questions. You know, two things can be true about Clemson, right? You can look at Clemson and say, it's really impressive that they've beaten Alabama. We just talked about how hard that is to do. It's, it's impressive they've gone outside of their conference, scheduled Auburn, A&M, Georgia, all these big games, preseason games. They have you know this soft schedule that they can't control, as we've talked about, but they go outside of it. They do everything they can. Yeah, they play two Power 5 teams in non-conference yeah, play. And South, Carolina, and South Carolina, too. Don't want to like disrespect that. Um, but point being, you, know, you can look at that and say that they've done all these great things, and on the other side say it was always kind of ridiculous to compare Dimbo, uh, Dabo to Saban because... Saban has had this crazy turnover. He took over this program that was obviously in turmoil in that 2007 era, immediately got them undefeated, and it's just replaced, I mean, I feel like, what, 10, 12 combined coordinators, especially now that Kirby's gone. So many. So many. And even if you take out guys that are, I mean, like, Scott Cochran, just key figures that aren't even coordinators, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, I didn't know, I obviously knew that about Brendan Bivels. I didn't know that about Tony Elliott being there that long, and how those guys together yep. kind of got in about the same time, where we're there for the entire rise. So it's like, not exactly what you said. Those records are set in stone. The wins are set in stone. We're not taking away that. But to be like an all-time, because he's already, you know what I'm saying, he's already tier one. Like, you can't take that away from him, even if he goes <laughs> out sad. But it's like, and now it's like, all right, like, you play in the ACC, and we've just talked about how I respect the things they've done, but you play in the ACC, and you can have, like, a year like this in the ACC, dog. This is what happened to LSU in, like, 2020, you know what I'm saying? Where it's just like, oh, you fell off and you're lost? Oh, we're here. Your, your hardest game is going to be against our boy uh, Tim Beck. It's like, no, dude. Like, you, you, you can't, like, you can get your way through the ACC on, like, a bum leg. In the SEC, that just punches you in the mouth. And Saban's never had that. And so at the end of the day, it's like, we'll see. This kind of goes into that, you know, uh, another comparison to Saban, winning at different schools, winning in different time periods. It's you got your thing that you have proven that you can do. Let's see some. Let's see you do something else, man. And like you said, we've seen even less like as casual co- football fans of Clemson because they never play anybody in the regular season. So there's Clemson's on the ropes moments. We watch the playoff, right? We watch the big games, but we don't really see all these inner workings of Clemson the way we do even Ohio State. So it's going to be interesting to see kind of like what they do with this next regime. And even if, who wants to go work for Dabo? Because he hasn't had to hire anybody. This shouldn't be my transition, but you just set me up so unbelievably well. Matt Berry's high school coach okay. was Tim Beck. Let's go. What a kid. We, I had to ask him a Tim Beck question. Let's go. We got into that. We got into some of this coaching carousel stuff, some of the stuff that we're, we're just talking about here. And he's got a Pac-12 perspective, of course. And 
man, you kind of listen to what this guy has done the past few years in his role at ESPN. It's it's pretty crazy. So we we dug into to all of that stuff, and we had him on a year ago as well, right around this time. And I know um, we we hit on some of the some of the same things, but he is somebody who just like you. If you turn on ESPN, like you just see him on all the time, and so he is somebody who's become so synonymous with college football. And stay for the stay for the great Spurrier story that he tells at the end. So here is Matt Berry. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is ESPN's Matt Berry. If you turn on college football during an ESPN broadcast, there's roughly like I don't know, 98% chance that you'll see Matt's face at some point. Matt, let's let's just get right into it. I ranted on this podcast last week about why a Christmas story is so terrible. You backed me on my take on Twitter the other day. I want your take on why a Christmas story is the worst and most overrated movie ever. First of all, Connor, great great talking with you and it's it's funny because I have long been silenced by my opinion of a Christmas story. I have put out there before that I have said that it's overrated and it's one of those movies that drives me nuts that people tell you it's great because I legitimately don't believe that people actually watch it and say that it's great. Yes. Two thoughts. One, people think it's funny because the leg lamp. That's number one. They see the lamp, they see the leg. Part one that people think it's hilarious. Part two is they quote that fragile line with the box with the lamp and everyone over quotes that and the double dog dare and everything in between. So they find a couple of quotable mo- moments and all of a sudden it's supposed to be good. I have tried for years to buy into the marathon. It's on every network. And every single time that I watch it, I sit down and go, you know what? This isn't good. This isn't funny. The age discrepancy between parents drives me nuts. Yes. It's Amen. Just, it's just weird. It's just not, it's just not good. It's, it's, I, I'm not entertained by it. I will take Elf, Home Alone, any of these other Christmas movies. Christmas Vacation, the all-timer. But Christmas Story, man, it is, it is just not good. It's cringe. It is so cringe. And I am blown away that there are so many people who – will defend it and, and will say, no, 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 you don't really get it. You know, this nostalgia thing, that nostalgia thing. And they'll say like, oh, you know, maybe it was, you know, I watched this growing up or something like that. I was forced to watch that movie growing up and I hated it. Yeah. And I thought, what that's in the what world is. is going on? That's that's it right that's there. That's what it is because it's always on. It's always on. And then there's a, there's a group of people that find him in the bunny suit on Christmas morning. There's just nothing. The, the little brother weirds me out when he's doing that honk thing when he's eating the mask. Yep. It's just all like, get, just get out of here with the Christmas story. Find a new movie to put on a marathon. But I, I'm telling you, I, I promise you, there are more of us than, than you think. There's Good. a significant number of people that are in our camp that are just waiting for pioneers like yourself to come out and people like me to back you that this movie just in fact is it's overrated. Okay, so you, you hinted at a couple of those potential other options. Number one Christmas movie is what? For me, it's it's Christmas Vacation. I could watch okay. National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. I, I just think it's just, to me that it it's a classic. That's my number one Christmas movie. 
My wife and I will watch it every year. We've already watched it once. We'll probably get it in again. You know what's underrated if you just want – and Elf is obviously a good one. We love Home Alone. You could pick apart Home Alone, but that's just kind of a Christmas classic. But the one that, that we find hilarious, maybe just because of our brand of sense of humor, Four Christmases with Vince Vaughn and Reese Witherspoon, sneaky funny. Okay, I keep seeing that recommended for me on Netflix and I haven't watched it yet. And I was trying to think to myself, I don't even remember when this came out. Was that like 10 years ago or is that like peak Reese Witherspoon? Or I guess Vince Vaughn's peak would have been about 15 years ago. I'm just thinking Wedding Crashers era. We're not talking all the way back to Swingers. But is did that movie just like slip past me? Like when did that, I don't even remember that coming out. It was 2000, it was pre-2010. It's been a while. So I think Gosh. I think it was about 2000, 2008, 2009, somewhere around there. Um, and look, again, I, I could be in the camp of people that just think it's good and everyone else will laugh at that. But I, I find it, my wife and I find it hilarious and entertaining. We kind of have a lot in common with the character and that uh, the, the whole main thing, they've got two families, uh, Reese's uh, parents in the movie are divorced. Same with Vince Vaughn. Both my wife and I come from that you know, situation. And then they don't have kids. My wife and I don't have kids. And so we just laugh at a lot of the stuff that they try to avoid during the holidays. It's just funny. I would watch it. Uh, it's entertaining. You'll like it. Okay, I need to, per your recommendation, I absolutely need to, to give that one a chance and I, for whatever reason, not just like skip over it and go on to some rather random Hallmark movie that's one with actual Hollywood yeah, pressure. Yeah, definitely um, don't I, do that. <laughs> I, I didn't just want to talk uh, Christmas movies with you today. Uh, I wanted to get into kind of your role in this past year or so and in, in all the different things that have gone on in college football because you have become this sort of Swiss Army knife for ESPN. You host the studio show, but you also do play-by-play -play for a Thursday night game. And then on top of that, you record the ESPN College Football Podcast uh, on a Sunday. I, I know that that wasn't necessarily how the weekend broke down every single week for you with the Thursday night stuff, but can you give us a rundown of what your craziest weekend was like this year? Every week, from week zero on. Uh, it's, it's my favorite time of year, but it's also the busiest time of my year. And, and when you get to week zero and then Labor Day weekend and you wake up, and it's, it's, it's rivalry week, and you're like, where did the last three and a half, four months go? But basically what I do... Uh, during college football season, I still maintain my full-time sports center schedule that I host with Sage Steele. So we do Tuesday through Friday, noon Eastern to 2 p.m. Eastern. So that's set in stone, sports center Tuesday through Friday. Uh, Thursday night football, also set in stone. Every Thursday night, ESPN. Wait, you do that every Thursday? Uh, every Thursday night. We call it, I call wow. it 14 games this year. Um, and then I'm getting ready to call the pinstripe bowl. So I called 14 games this year. Uh, we had some really good ones too. Miami, Virginia was a good one. We had Gus Malzahn's debut UCF Boise state. Uh, we had, we got moved to Friday for the North Carolina, North Carolina state game in Raleigh. That game was amazing, but yeah, I called 14, 14 games this fall. And so within the sports center week, you're doing all of your coaches calls with the coaching staff and the game prep. So you're you're balancing sports center and then game prep. And then Thursdays you're doing a 2-hour sports center 
and then you're coming back at night and calling Thursday night college football. Then you're waking up on Friday to go back to do Sports Center that day, and then you come back Friday night to do college football countdown in the pregame and halftime of the Friday night college football game on ESPN. And then you're coming back first thing on Saturday to do 16 hours with Jesse and Joey again. We get there at 11.30 a.m. and we leave at 2.30 a.m. So that's the Saturday because we end it with college football final. Sunday, I record the podcast with Paul Feinbaum. And then Monday, I record the podcast with Kirk Herbstreet and then start the process all over again Monday after the podcast, back into a production call for the next Thursday night game, and so on and so forth. And that, it was that way for 14 weeks. Oh, my gosh. I For whatever reason, I thought you weren't necessarily set, locked in for every single Thursday night, but that makes it all the more incredible when you kind of think about the hours. Have you gone back and totaled the hours of what it's like in a given week? Because I got to imagine when you don't have an off day during the season, you have moments where you just look up, where you just forget to look up and process everything yeah. that's going on. But if, if it doesn't feel like work for you, which you kind of come off as one of those guys as just somebody who's so passionate about the sport, then it's a little bit different. But I got to imagine that that is just an insane workload. So my weeks are so regimented and like my, how I've got a schedule each day to make sure that it kind of all gets in where it needs to get in. Um, I schedule three days of week or where I, where I go work out and go to classes to just stay mentally and physically sharp. So there's mornings, you know, Wednesdays and Thursdays, I'm at a, I'm at a workout class at 7 a.m. for an hour to make sure I get something in before I go into work to allow that time for me just to, again, with that kind of schedule, you know, you're mentally and physically exhausted, but you got to kind of find a way to take care of yourself. And so I make sure that that gets in. So that's on the schedule. You know, we've got record times for the podcast that hit at that exact time because Sunday mornings, I'm a zombie. We don't get done. Like I said, we get done with college football final. I get home 2.45 a.m. after a 16-hour day after the entire week of work, and you kind of wake up on Sunday trying to figure out where you are. And so Paul and I taped that podcast late morning. Um, and then I kind of use the rest of the day, you know, my wife and I will go to brunch or just be lazy or something. And then, <laughs> and then Mondays, again, I schedule the workout time just to make sure I get something in on Monday. And then I get ready for the production call to, to preview the upcoming Thursday game. And then Herbie and I record the podcast. And so I try to make everything as, as strict as I can, just because if you don't, you're, you'll, you'll get lost. And then in between, you're just, you're trying to do life stuff, run errands, you know, dry cleaning, like just little things that you got to find a way to get in. And, you know, you, I say this every year, you get to Labor Day weekend. And then with my schedule, I wake up and it's Thanksgiving and I'm trying to figure out where the hell everything went in between. I'm interested in what you like the most doing, because I'm sure at different points in your life and different points in your career, it has been one thing or another, but I've talked to Dari Noka about this before, and he's somebody who got the Sports Center experience and now doing this role at SEC Network, he loves getting that, you know, to be the play-by-play person, it, just for their studio shows, but 
for you, what what is that experience that that just kind of makes you say, all right, this is a little bit different. This is what I like doing more than anything else because it seems like they've let you do pretty much anything that you've wanted within the network. Yeah, I, I love calling games. Um, it's something that I never thought I would do, and it's something I never wanted to do. I did, I came up, you know, when kind of a it's it's an old way to come up about it now i don't think many people are doing it anymore but i came out through when i graduated college from arizona state i went on my local tv journey you know you kind of work your way out from small market to you know medium-sized market to big market my big market before espn i worked in dallas at the nbc station in dallas for five years and so coming up i was always a an anchor a host and a reporter I never, ever did play-by-play. I never wanted to do play-by-play. I just wanted to focus on hosting because it's what I love to do. And then there was an opportunity in 2018 where when that midweek matching starts, they had a hole in the schedule uh, for play-by-play people, and they just needed someone to help them out. And without, like, even breaking it down, they're like, hey, we need help, midweek mat game, you interested? I'm like, yeah, sure, what the hell, I'll do it. And then after I get off the phone, I realized, I was like, you know what? I just committed to do play-by-play on ESPN. I've never done it before in my life. And this was <laughs> a few years ago. And so I did two years of midweek matching and just fell in love with calling games. And it's just, to me, it's, it's just, it's the best adrenaline in TV that you get because you legitimately have no idea what's going to happen next. And I, look, the thing that I love about it is I know – I'm not Chris Fowler and Sean McDonough and some of the best play-by-play guys we have in the business. Those guys are, you know, McDonough's a classically trained play-by-play genius. I'm not. I'm a studio guy that just popped into play-by-play. And so I, I, I just love doing it. I love the conversation during the game. I, I do it a little bit differently because I'm a studio host doing play-by-play. I'm not a, like I said, trained play-by-play person. And so I think the newness, the challenge – um, I told someone one time, it's, it's the one part of my job that I'm a little, I don't want to use the word insecure, but it's one of those things that I know that I'm not one of the best out there doing it. And so I like that challenge of, of trying to get better every week. And I like the, the excitement surrounding the game. And so in a long winded answer, I love calling games because it's the newest thing of my career. Having said that, being there on set all day Saturday with Jesse and Joey and, and taking the viewers through an entire day of Saturday college football is also great. So I've just been really fortunate to be able to do all of those things. But the adrenaline, like being in Raleigh for that North Carolina-North Carolina State game and the way that that ended and the way that they came back, I mean, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't match that in any other job. I mean, that game ended at 11 o'clock. You call a three-and-a-half, four-hour game. You're on adrenaline. You got to go back to the hotel and try to get some sleep because your alarm goes off at 3:30 a.m. to catch a 5 a.m. flight from Raleigh back to Connecticut to be in studio by 11:30 for an all-day of Saturday football. There was no chance because the adrenaline from the game. I took a two-hour nap, got on my flight, landed here in Connecticut at 10, came home, rinsed off, and was back in Bristol for a 16-hour day, and it was all on adrenaline, and that's from calling games. That's that's incredible, and uh, I don't know if many people kind of process just that grind and what that's like. Because if if you don't have passion for the sport, 
you're gonna get burnt out doing that. And there are people that you can see it, you see it in the work, you see it in the way that they talk about sport, the, the sport in general, and I don't need to name names here, you know exactly who I'm talking about, where they just come off like the burnt out person and everything's just bitter and you don't come off that way at all. And one of the things that, that I love about your answer is like, all right, you do play by play, you get these new experiences, it just kind of gets your adrenaline going in a different, unique way. I, I gotta ask about one of the Thursday night games that you did. The well, actually, the game that you just brought up there—that would have been NC State with Tim Beck. He is somebody that we've talked about on this podcast before, and I've got this theory about him. And I know that he was your high school football coach. So that's why I want to ask you about this. We have talked about like kind of his unique role in college football and all these various jobs that he's been at. My theory is that Tim Beck is the sweetest person in the world, and that's why he has so many different friends in the business, so where if he goes from one power five to another, he's always taken care of. Can you confirm that Tim Beck is like the nicest person in the world? Absolutely not. I mean, that guy, look, yes, he's, <laughs> yes, he's, he's, he's a very, he's, of course, he's a, he's a, he's a nice individual um, and does. He takes a lot of stock in where he came from. But from someone who in his formative years, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, I mean, that guy made my life hell. I mean, that, guy <laughs> struck the, that guy struck the fear of God into us. I mean, he did not want to mess with Coach Beck. He had such a presence and such an intimidation factor over his players. I mean, he, he's a heck of a coach. I mean, he's a hell of a coach. He taught you discipline and accountability for others. So from someone who went through his two-a-days in Scottsdale, Arizona, in the middle of summer, I, I would definitely not call him sweet. Um, <laughs> but he's got a good football acumen. If you look at his history and what he's done and where he came from and kind of how he's been through every job, Nebraska, Ohio State, Texas, NC State, he won state championships as a Texas high school football coach. The guy knows ball. I mean, he knows he knows football, and uh, it, it it was funny to kind of reunite with him after so much time, seeing this guy that that had such an impact and control over our lives as teenagers playing football with him. We won the first state championship at that school in 1995, and then him being the offensive coordinator on my broadcast, it was kind of funny because I was like, you know, I'm in charge now. This is my show, so call a good game, bro. Call a good game, or I'll let you know millions of people know that you're not, but. Yeah, he's, you're right. He's been around. Maybe his, his demeanor with people off the field has changed. And I know he and I have a different relationship now that, that we're no longer player and coach. But it, it, it was something else to kind of see him grow in his career and have all these jobs that he's had. What position do you play? I started out as a freshman and sophomore, started out as our quarterback. We had a kid – that came up. He was a year ahead of me. His name was Ryan Smith. Ended up sprouting to 6'3", 6'4". Uh, got a scholarship. We kind of competed in the spring the year ahead of me. He was playing baseball, so I was kind of the – I had the inside track during spring ball of 93, somewhere around there. He grew. I didn't. Um, so I ended up moving from – I stayed at quarterback, but I ended up being one of our outside it was the rover position in that defense. And in a typical 4-3, it'd be the second safety. We moved him up to the outside. So it was basically a safety linebacker hybrid uh, that we called a rover that I ended up playing and then backing up Ryan if he uh, ever got hurt. Were you a neck roll guy back in the day? Man, was I a neck roll guy. I've got a picture <laughs> that I've put out on social media a couple times. We've had fun with on air 
numerous times at ESPN. But back then, man, I was about a buck, buck ninety. Right now, I think I'm a buck sixty. Uh, so <sighs> neck roll, all of it, man. I was there was going to be four quarters of problems with my neck roll and shoulder pads. It was it was fun. We had a we had a, we, we we have a good time with that picture all the time. You, you can find it on my on my Twitter or uh, Instagram. I'm sure it's up there somewhere. Okay, so speaking of your tweets, you put out something that I've been wanting to ask you about for the last month or so because I think it's really interesting. Uh, you tweeted in mid-October, unless something goes horribly wrong internally or externally, the earliest college football coach should be fired is five years. To really implement culture, cultivate a roster of your DNA and talent takes time. Ironically, Twitter with its right now culture has started to stain the sport. So. There's a lot to unpack there, and I know you're coming from sure. an informed place with that opinion because, in theory, yes, coaches sh should absolutely get time. In certain situations, it's brutal to see how quickly a fan base can turn. The Manny Diaz, that, that whole deal at Miami, it felt brutal because the guy modernized the offense. He made the right hires. He did the transfer portal right, like all those different things. But I think where that kind of argument has some holes in it is a situation like Arkansas, right? Chad Morris should not have yeah. gotten five years. No. If he did... No. Like he's just now. So I guess what I'm what I'm asking is like so at a place like that where you know it looks like yeah. Arkansas quick trigger. They don't let him finish year two, and you wouldn't necessarily say, well, Chad Morris had these off the field issues or something like that. And you would look at that situation and say that's strictly on the field type stuff. And so I guess where I, I'm I'm kind of coming at this is I now see some of the merits to it, and we've seen some of it play out. We've seen situations where it's backfired. So I kind of want to give you the floor to be able to to kind of just take it whatever direction that you want to, to, to talk about why you think this is something that should be implemented or at least should be kind of one of those unwritten rules in the sport. Yeah, so Chad Morris is an example a lot of people threw at me, and he would be one that I would classify as something went horribly wrong. Gotcha. Um, Jimmy Lake, Washington, another example of something went horribly wrong internally, and the people within the organization knew how bad it was. Chad Morris was in over his skis. There's zero debating that. Jimmy Lake in over his skis. There's zero debating that. I can watch college football and in year two see that Arkansas was inept at knowing how to play football. That falls on the head coach. And people know enough within the organization to know exactly what the problem is. I'll give you an example of something done right. Mark Stoops, he was almost mm. fired – I think after year three, after year three, somewhere around there, he just couldn't get it going. But they showed the patience to say, you know what? We got to build this thing from foundation up and we're seeing improvement. And my, my qualifications for improvement are how's recruiting and how's the effort. If the recruiting is good and you're getting, and you're starting to make some strides within uh, getting guys in, that's number one, that the system is still working. And the number two, what's the effort on Saturdays? You can tell immediately, you could be losing games, but your guys could still be competing. One of the teams that I think of with that is, is, is Florida State this year. Look, they didn't have a good season. Miami was another one, two good examples. They didn't have a really good season, but they were still competing. Florida State was still competing for Mike Norvell. I, look, it doesn't look good, and there were some losses that are absolutely inexplicable for him, but you're seeing the right kind of effort. So Mark Stoops is a guy that's a good example of giving him time to get it done. Another one that lost and ran out of excuses that I think was handled absolutely perfectly, Justin Fuente, Virginia Tech. He was hmm. given, this is his sixth year. 
He was given six years to prove that it worked. There is no debate, no doubt whatsoever that it just didn't work. It wasn't going to work. And they could go to bed at night saying, okay, we gave him time to get it done. And it wasn't done properly. You know, in my neck of the woods, everyone's all over Herm Edwards. Well, why isn't Herm Edwards getting the deal? There's a lot of stuff going on internally there with that investigation. They had the talent. They were eight and four this year. They underperformed based on expectations. Eight and four. Yeah, that's good. They can get nine in the bowl game and, and have a great season, still building on it. We'll see what the investigation has. But Herm's been there four years. Herm's a friend of mine. Everybody knows that. We work together at ESPN. At the end of five years, they're going to be able to evaluate if this thing's headed in the right direction. Because in year one, year one doesn't count. People, what do you mean year one doesn't count? It just doesn't because a coach is inheriting an entire roster of someone else's players, save for the 16 to 20 they might salvage on a signing day, okay? So now you're coming in year one trying to implement your foundation and your culture. Year two, you get another signing under your belt, another signing day under your belt. Let's call it, again, 18 to 22 players or so. So you combine the two. You've got about 35 to 40, hopefully, of your players that have stayed and not entered the portal. So you've got one, two, well, about one and a half full classes of your guys plus some of the guys you inherited. So now the expectations are laid out of what it takes to play for that current coach. That's year two. And you want to see some improvements on the field, and ideally, if you're that head coach, you want the majority of the guys that you recruited playing, which means you're young. So now you're in year two, playing a lot of freshmen, maybe a couple of sophomores and some holdovers from the last staff. That's year two. Year three is the year now where you should have control of most of the roster after your third signing class. So now you should really see, okay, these are most of my guys. He's recruiting either at a good level or bad level. The guys that he's recruiting are playing well, and now the roster turnover is just about complete from the prior staff. That's year three, want to make a bowl game, want to compete. Year four is the year. No ifs, ands, or buts. Year four is the year. You should have 100% roster control. Your recruiting's in place. Your foundation's in place. Your culture's in place. How you're going to coach and get along with the boosters, the administration, and everything involved in that job, it's there. So year four is really the first time you see a full implementation of who that coaching staff is and who that head coach is, which is why I think year five, it's, that's it. You got your one full year, four year to clean house, get everything done the way you wanted to, facilities the way you wanted to, quarterback you need, this, that, and the other. Year five is your year. If you don't build on what you started to do in year three, year four, your first full year, and now year five, you're gone. But if you can – we might have something going here, and that's why I'm just passionate about, unless it's a Chad Morris or a Jimmy Lake, a Taggart at FSU, that was clear that thing wasn't going to work. There are examples, which is why you brought up Manny Diaz in Miami. I get it. Mario Cristobal has been the guy they've been after for a while, but there was improvement. Manny was recruiting at a high level. He was check one there, check two, they were competing, and – it, it was just a perfect storm of the Cristobal and the Radakovich that kind of was his undoing. I don't know that they handled it the best way, but I think Manny's an example of you, you, if Cristobal's not in play, that that he should have gotten more time. So that's kind of my philosophy on the coaching. Okay, that's and all that is is perfectly fair, and, and I think that 
that you bring up a lot of great points about the the development and and how there should be a, a this should be linear to a certain extent with coaching staffs and it doesn't always work out that way this build up this roster control all these different things just understanding the basic dynamics of how this all works what about Dan Mullen of Florida because year four gone but everybody by the time he was fired unless you were kind of looking at this from the outside and not really paying close attention to it everybody that was paying close attention to it knew that his time was up and this thing wasn't working do you look at a situation like that and say you know what he should have been given that extra year he should have had a year five based on the fact that he went to three new year six bowls to start off or would you look at that and say well maybe that's the line of things are going wrong internally he should have been fired at the end of year four it's a great question because Dan Mullen is a great example because for me, I had said this on TV at some point, and maybe it was even the podcast, I don't remember, but I've never seen something fall so fast from where it was. I mean, you just mentioned it. Three consecutive New Year's Six Bowls took Nick Saban down to the wire in the SEC Championship a year ago, made Kyle Trask, an unrecruited guy, a thing, had Kyle Pitts, Dan Mullen could do no wrong. They took Alabama to the wire this year. But there were a couple of things that went against him, and it goes to the criteria that I just mentioned with the coach. Part one, the recruiting. Everybody knows the Dan Mullen recruiting stories by now. He didn't seem to be the most passionate recruiter. And if you are consistently getting out-recruited by teams in your state, Miami, Florida State, even at some point Central Florida, if you're getting out-recruited by those schools, that's problem one in a coaching tenure. And then problem two, effort on the field. There were a lot of times where it looked like Florida was, was lost. They didn't know what they were doing. And you combine the two between effort on the field and off-the-field recruiting and then stuff that was going on internally that most of us probably aren't privy to, it was, it was the right time. And there are so many things that go on internally that, you know, some of us know, some of us don't, or most of us don't, that lead to these decisions. And I think with Mullen, you had the two that I always look at, recruiting and effort, and then other stuff going on internally. And they just felt like it was the right time to make the move because they had passed the point where they thought either of those two were recoverable. You're a Pac-12 guy, so I'm, I'm curious your take on the coaching changes at Oregon and USC. Let's let's start with Oregon. Mario Cristobal, who we were just talking about, goes back to his alma mater, and for the second time in four years, Oregon watches a coach leave for the Sunshine State. And some will say, ah, you know, he just wanted to go to Miami. Oregon's still a great job because of Nike and whatnot. But when he got a raise last year in December, he became the fourth highest paid coach in the Pac-12, which was a stunning thing that I had to reread like three different times. I'm like, he's just now getting to that level? That seems weird to me. Tell me why Oregon maybe isn't the job that so many think it is. Yeah, I was talking with someone about this the other day about Oregon being a little bit of a uh, kind of a show pony, a little bit of an overrated job. I think it's a great great uniform school you get the nike i get it phil knight you've got the facilities that's all well and good but look at the history of oregon football pre-chip kelly look at the history before then look at the history just briefly after chip kelly helfrich and i took him to the national championship marks mario mariota quarterback and then kind of look at what mario was building there and he did a remarkable job at oregon won the pac-12 there's a few things i'll say about it one 
Pac-12 has been down because USC is down. Oregon may not be the best team in the Pac-12 when USC figures it out. In fact, I'd almost guarantee they won't be. Why? Because you're competing with USC and L.A. area talent that Lincoln Riley is going to have at his disposal. That's part one. Part two, we're now in a day and age where everybody's facilities in college football are getting to the Oregon level. Now, they might have a few more toys because they have to because they're in the middle of nowhere in Oregon. But everybody's facilities are great. And so when you start comparing all things considered, what it takes to get the talent up to Eugene, Oregon, again, it's hard to get people in and out of there. When you take that into consideration, when you take the fact that everybody's got good facilities now and USC is about to pop, I mean, how good of a, like, how good of a job is it? People always point to Nike, Phil Knight, and facilities. I get it. But every... I mean, uh, Tim Cook, CEO, Apple, Auburn. Like we did there, you could do this with every university. You could do this with every single university. And so, people are a little bit surprised that 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 this would happen. But Oregon shows well. But when you really start breaking down what it is in this climate of college football, I would call it a good job, not a great job. That's a I, that's a perfectly fair take, and that's said but even better than that I've tried to say it. And as somebody who has experienced kind of what it's like to watch the the rise and and fall, so to speak, of the Pac-12, you're obviously very well educated to 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 speak on that matter. And what everybody's wondering about now is this rise about to happen again with Lincoln Riley at USC. Pac-12 is down because USC's down, like you said. Is Lincoln Riley in a position now where three years from now we're going to be talking about him winning national titles? Or do you think it takes a little bit longer and that program isn't maybe as ready-made as some are kind of making it out to be? It's not going to be a good first year for Lincoln. He's got to do a complete – like the, the thing I just talked about. They're going to have to do a roster turnover. They're going to have to figure out who they can plug and play right away. They're going to have to figure out, you know, is Jackson Dart the quarterback and this Malachi kid, the five-star. you got to figure it all out. And so we know that USC is, is a ripe, fertile – recruiting ground can he keep the Bryce Youngs and the Matt Corrals and those players in state if done right I say this all the time USC is a team that should be in the playoff every year that that's if if done right it that's to me should be a given the thing with Lincoln Riley is people have to look at this through the eyes of history he's had Kyler Murray he's had Baker Mayfield He's had talent. He's had CeeDee Lamb. He's had all of these players at Oklahoma. And he's been to the college football playoff with number one overall picks and Heisman Trophy winners. How far did Oklahoma advance in the playoff with Lincoln Riley as their head coach? So you have to, you have to look at it all with, based on what we've seen. You are going to get similar talent at Oklahoma to USC. I would give USC the edge because of proximity to the players that he's going to be recruiting that want to stay home, but you're getting frontline talent at Oklahoma. So Lincoln Riley is absolutely good enough to get USC to the playoff each year. It's what he does with the playoff opportunity. That's going to be the difference because when Pete Carroll was running that thing, we hadn't seen the rise of all these programs in the South just yet. You know, we had the dominant, a brand back in the 90s and the U in 2001. That was kind of where everything was hanging out. You know, Nick Saban was at LSU. 
at that early time trying to make his way back to Alabama. We haven't we hadn't seen the Alabama rise yet. We hadn't seen the sustainability of some of these great programs in the SEC. We hadn't seen the rise of Clemson yet. And so it was basically USC and everybody else. Now it's everybody else and everybody else. And so I think that's going to be the challenge uh, for Lincoln Riley at USC, not to mention Ohio State's hanging out there, Jim Harbaugh's hanging out there with Michigan, and so Georgia. I mean, listen to all these programs that have named that have kind of come up into an annual top ten conversation. That wasn't always the case when Pete Carroll was there. And so now Lincoln Riley's got to take what Pete Carroll did and do that with now, you know, six, seven, eight programs that are that are built to last in a college football playoff consideration. One last thing I want to ask you about before some rapid fire stuff to end here, and this is a two-part question. I noticed that you did not tweet out your Heisman ballot. I assume that's because you didn't want to get into Twitter fights with people because, hey, that's the internet. So do you want to instead release it here and get people to yell at their phones? Or you can just tell us where you had Will Anderson on your ballot. Yeah, so I would love to to disclose my Heisman ballot, except for I don't get a Heisman vote. So I what? Don't, uh, I know. I, I do not have a Heisman vote. And so huh. that's actually one of the things that drives me nuts is that, one, I don't have a Heisman vote. I'm sure that if I started going through the process of trying to obtain one, I would have said, and I said this to everybody all year, and this was a defensive year for the Heisman Trophy to be handed out to a defensive player. Bryce Young was brilliant in that final drive against Auburn, and he was brilliant in the SEC championship game. Will Anderson could be the best player in college football. Aiden Hutchinson is so good. So this was a year where you really could have looked at it for the best player in college football and gone away from the it's a quarterback award. But that's what I would have done had I had the, uh, the, the right to vote. Man, I can't believe that you don't have a vote. Somebody who's as involved as so, with so many different college football things at ESPN, that blows me away. I, I said on last pod how Ryan Rosillo always talks about at ESPN that you used to just hand them out like like candy. And you being such a such a big part of ESPN's college football production, who do we need to talk to to get you a Heisman vote? Because you are way more informed than so many of the people who have votes right now. You know what? Now that we're on this topic, I, I will make that, once I recover from the season, I was, I was in my recovery mode last week down in Florida. Uh, we got a place in West Palm, so I, I, it's kind of a nice retreat for me. But once I get through, I'm back at work this week. That, that's going to be on my off-season to-do list. Once we get to and through the national championship in Indianapolis, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make that a priority of, of seeing who I, who I can go to, uh, to to start getting on that Heisman Trophy list. All right, you and I both, we're getting Heisman votes next year. We're going to talk to the right people. We're going to make it happen. We'll have Heisman debates. We'll, we'll, we'll be able to discuss. We'll be able to tweet our, our Heisman ballots afterwards and then get everybody in our mentions just to get the interactions up. We'll, we'll do the whole deal. I'm, uh, I'm very much on, on board for that. I want to close with uh, some rapid-fire questions for you. It's just five sure. questions. First thing that comes to mind. Does that work for you? Yep. All right, first one. Talked about Christmas movies. The best Christmas song is what? Oh, Holy Night. Oh, classic. Okay. Anybody specific? Or is that um, is that a Bing Crosby one? Oh, I don't know the origin. I just know everybody from Whitney Houston and the day. It's, it's one of those big, powerful ballads. That yeah. uh, if you're with family, if you're at church, if you're doing one of those things, it's just one of those good 
it's not, you know, it's not the slappy Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer type Christmas song. So I go deep with that one, All Holy Night. Real, real, real good big picture song if you're looking for a year and time to reflect. Okay, I like that. Um, build a franchise around Kenny Pickett, Matt Corral, Malik Willis, Sam Howell. Who's your guy? Kenny Pickett. And you that put was, Kenny Pickett was... right. I I call the pick game. He's he has, he's just he's wise, and you want a guy that's that could come in and play, and and make the right decisions. I think that it's Kenny Pickett. I think perhaps upside. You need to prove that he's not just a scheme guy. Matt Corral could be fun, but I, I think Kenny Pickett, if put in the right situation, is going to be a great player. Yeah, no problem with that at all. Uh, you worked in Columbia in the early Spurrier years. Your best Spurrier story, and you can make this as short or as long as you want. So I got there right when he got there. So when Spurrier took over in South Carolina, I was, I was there working as a CBS affiliate. And at the time, our sports director, Bob Shields, God rest his soul, we lost him uh, last year. Uh, he was off that particular day. And... Spurrier would do a day where he would grant sit down one-on-one interviews with all the local television stations. And so they, they never gave notice. It was like Spurrier's doing one-on-ones today. What time can you be here? So the day that Spurrier granted the, the one-on-ones, uh, Bob Shields, he was off that day and he wasn't going to be able to come in. And so like, Matt, you got to go do the sit down with Spurrier. So like, great. You know, I'm younger at that time. I'm young in my career. It's Steve Spurrier. It's the head ball coach. I'm a little bit nervous. Like, this is my chance with Spurrier. And so we get in there, and he's just a – he's a unique character. And so I'm already a little bit nervous. I got like 25, I think, 24, 25. He sits down, and he just gets done working out. Treadmill rinses off, comes to sit down. My photographer, Reggie Anderson, still works at the station – just a hilarious guy. Anyone who works in Columbia, you know, like a good friend, Alyssa Lang, she works at the same station. Everybody knows Reggie. So Reggie's coming up. Mind you, I'm trying to make some small talk with a very interesting person, Steve Spurrier. He goes to Mike Spurrier up. So he takes the cord of the lavalier mic, starts to run it up Spurrier's shirt. If you know Spurrier, he doesn't like to be touched. He always gets people hand pounds, doesn't shake hands, he hates being touched. Well, Reggie's hand makes contact with Spurrier's chest, and Spurrier <laughs> flips out. Hey, what do you mean? You know, he just starts doing his thing, slaps his hand away, visually furious that my photographer was going up his shirt and touched his sweaty chest. And so, for, and then he just starts glaring at me, and I'm like, "Dude, my first opportunity. Sit down with Steve Spurrier, and you're going up his shirt, and now I got to deal with the aftermath of that." <laughs> but we ended up, we ended up calling him down, and at the end of the interview, and I still have this tape somewhere. I have to find it. He was like, "After all this, he's like, man, good questions, Matt. Might have to get you a promotion." And I saved that <laughs> because. 20 minutes before, my photographer was sealing them up and getting them all angry. And then 20 minutes later, I get the endorsement from the old ball coach that I ask good questions. That's incredible. How did he not ask him beforehand, hey, I'm going to stick this mic up your shirt? Who just goes and does that? So what I think happened, I think Spurrier thought that Red was just going to clip it on his, on his collar. Okay. And I think that when he just went for it up the shirt, 
I, it just stunned everyone. And he made contact with his chest immediately. I literally think he thought, and then, and then what ended up happening is Spurrier just grabbed the mic from him and did it himself. But I believe that, that he thought he was just going to get the old collar clip and, and little did he know he went to uh second base with my photographer. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. All right. More likely to happen. Jesse Palmer hosts the bachelor for the next 20 years or Brian Kelly develops a passable Southern accent. Oh, Palmer. I mean, Palmer has like 27 jobs in just about every genre on TV. So my guess is he'll be hosting the bachelor until he's a grandpa. Gosh, he's, he's probably still going to look. I mean, yeah, we, we know that to be the case. Je- he, Palmer's still going to look like he's, you know, like mid to late 30s. He's going to have that little salt and pepper thing going on. He's not going to age in the next 20 years as well. That's going to be the most frustrating thing about watching him. You know, Palmer and I are the exact same age. We are identical of age. So we are going to be able to see uh, who, who ages better throughout the years. And we've talked about that too. I'm like, like we're going to, in a decade, Palmer, you and I are going to see who's confused for being younger. <laughs> All right, last one for you. Um, and I, I buried the lead. I saved this one just for the end. When was the last time you got confused for Jason Bateman in public? Man, that's the one that I get all the time. You look like Bateman. You look like Bateman. My wife can't stand it when people say I look like Jason Bateman. Um, it happens all the time. Not getting confused for it in public, but everybody that like, you have conversation with, oh, you look like Jason Bateman. There was a time where it was <laughs> – we had a couple of people that would say Emilio Estevez. What? Uh, there's, been a, there's been a couple of times. Uh, back in the day, Baldwin, one of the Baldwin brothers, but the leader in the clubhouse. Oh, and Michael J. Fox. Young Michael J. Fox was always one. But but Bateman has, has taken the lead. And if I could wash money like he does in Ozark, you know, maybe things would be a lot better than they are. But, yeah, the, the Bateman thing happens all the time. I was going to say, he's doing well with Ozarks now. That's not the worst thing in the world. It's not the worst guy to get compared to. No, you look, he, Jason Bateman's new again. And, and that, to me, is one of the best shows on TV. I can't wait for it to come back. So the fact that Bateman – and I find Jason Bateman's humor hilarious, kind of a dry, witty, yep. undertone-type humor. So I find it as a compliment. Uh, I, I just don't think my wife thinks Bateman's attractive, which doesn't bode well for me. But that's, the, uh, that's definitely the, the leader in the comparison clubhouse. Matt, this has been great, man. Really, really appreciate the time. Have a safe and happy holiday not watching A Christmas Story. Yeah, appreciate the time. Always enjoy talking ball with you. And for anyone who's out there, it's okay. Come to our side. Water's warm. Once you really realize A Christmas Story is not good, your holidays henceforth will be worth it. What's my destiny, Mom? You're going to have to figure that out for yourself. Life is a box of chocolates fullest. You never know what you're gonna get. Figuring out Christmas songs, I love me some Christmas music. I'm, I'm pretty much open to anything that is an Alvin and the Chipmunks, I think. <laughs> and maybe some people in the Facebook group will make me realize that I'm actually not as open to other things as maybe I thought. I don't necessarily dislike Little Saint Nick, song by the Beach Boys, classic. But the Sounds like words, you do. <laughs> but the words 
Christmas comes this time each year has to be the laziest line in the history of music. Shout out to the Beach Boys, by the way. Mm-hmm. Those guys are kings. When we talk about people that just get, it's like uh, Keenan Thompson at SNL. It's like the Beach Boys are always going to be the Beach Boys. They'll have a steady check to be the Beach Boys, and they're just that all the time. Good for them. You're the first person that's ever compared Keenan Thompson to the Beach Boys, but I don't. It's spot on. Money team, spot bro. On. Money team. <laughs> Whole month of December, Christmas music. We pretty much got that going on Pandora. That's that's the only thing that we really are are listening to for an extended period of time. I don't listen to it before Thanksgiving, and I'll admit, it's sort of strange being here in Florida because the surroundings don't put you in that mood. Mm -hmm. So it can feel forced at certain times. Will, are you a big uh, Christmas Christmas music guy in December? Um, so as I'm starting to grow up, I am more of one and I'm starting to realize like life just kind of is like you're a kid and everything's cool and then you kind of get too cool for everything and then things yep. start getting cool again. And like now I'm back in that point where I like, dude, we had a Christmas party like last night where we like baked cookies for everybody. It was very wholesome. I was just playing Christmas songs like constantly for a week. And then I put on like some James Brown. We were running late. It was a great time. So I'm back on the Christmas, the Christmas music bandwagon. Oh, thanks for the invite. I would have driven the six and a half hours to get there. Jerk. <laughs> wow. <Appreciate that. laughs> I'll mail you a cookie counter with your present. We got so many cookies right now. So many Christmas cookies in the house. It's a mm -hmm. dangerous, dangerous game, friendo. Um, oh, yeah. What's that song that you told me about that I had never heard before, but you were convinced that everyone on planet Earth has heard this song? Do they know it's Christmas? Okay, so this song is bonkers, dude. You've heard this song. If you haven't heard this song, you not you, not you, but the viewer, regular people have heard this song. I'm saying, Fair. look up, do they know it's Christmas? Apparently it was like some type of like um, like charity thing for Africa. And me and my buddy talked about this like at length the other day, because if you listen to like the last 30 seconds of the world, it's the one that's like, let them know it's Christmas time at the end. And like, you just kind of hear that part. It's like free the world or feed the world. It looks very cool. And then like you go through the lyrics and like, first, first off, First off, the cover art is like some CGI reindeer, some CGI bears, and like a starving child. So like off rip, it's off the rails. Love it. Uh, it's just off the rails. I guess it was like a very like, it was a good hearted attempt to like get some money or funding to Africa during Christmas. But in our modern lens, it looks very tone deaf because all the lyrics are like every famous person from the 80s just being like, Africa sucks. Give them your money because they can't eat. And then it's like, ah, feed the world. Also, very, you wish, it's a good thing you live in America and not Africa, buddy. Listen to the lyrics of this song. You've heard it in past. Like, you look at it now and you're like, oh, this is a weird, I don't want to play this at the parties anymore. This is a weird song. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> you told me the other day that I, that I had heard this song and that by the end of the song, I will know exactly what you're talking about. I am still just as clueless. I'm more clueless now, I think. <laughs> You're not missing much, yeah. It was like a glass-breaking moment for me because I was like, what is this song doing? Once I saw the cover art, it was it was over. Go look up the cover art to that song. You're going to be blown. <laughs> it's, it's weirder than the Christmas movie, I promise you, we talked about last week. Oh, gosh, that was <laughs> very weird. I, I didn't need Morgan Freeman in an eye patch like that. Did not need that in my life. Thank you, Will, for providing that. So I, I'm Facebook at war group. with the Google Doc cover. <laughs> yes, you are. Yes, you are. Ask the Facebook group for best Christmas song, worst Christmas song, Ya or Nah, Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You, and when is the right time to start listening to Christmas music. So, thank you to everybody who submitted responses to the Saturday Down South podcast on Facebook. Let's start with Drew Page. Drew says, it's not Christmas, but the Adam Sandler Hanukkah song is the goat above all Christmas songs. 
It's very good. It's very good. I love me some Adam Sandler. If, if, any, if anybody remembers the Jason Brown interview, he and I, um, meme, shaking hands, Adam Sandler movies, mm -hmm. big fan, eight crazy nights, funny, no doubt about it. Um, can't play that on repeat though. I need Christmas songs that I can play on repeat. That one's a little bit more, ah, you hear it once or twice a year. If that comes on your Pandora like three times in a day, you're like, all right, we, we've had enough, we get it. Great song though. Will, thoughts on that? Or, or just thoughts on, on Hanukkah songs in general? Do we need more of them? Dude, I know like every word to that song. I love that song so much. I mean, it's not a Christmas song, so like in theory, you could just give it an in slash A. If I, had a, if I had lump it in there, I'd probably put it top five. He's so funny. And okay. there's so many like, I learned so much about the world through that song because I heard it for the first time when I was like five. I was like, oh, this guy's Jewish. How about that? This other guy. Look at all these cool Jewish people. So good for Adam Sandler for educating young me. The owner of the Seattle Supersonicas. Sandler I think half Jewish, right? Hanukkah. <laughs> let's go um, um, let's go with Alexander Nicole Alexander says one all I want for Christmas is you by Mariah Carey is the best as well as Christmas wrapping by the waitresses the worst according to Alexandra is Dominic the donkey Santa baby and baby it's cold outside Got some takes on that. And then, um, yes, she confirms that um, All I Want For Christmas Is You is a great song. And then Christmas Eve is when she starts listening to Christmas music. Wow, hmm. very, very late in the game, especially for today's day and age. Okay, this is the diehard part of, like last week we talked about his diehard Christmas movie, the All I Want For Christmas Is You by Mariah Carey. We're gonna get to that discussion in a second here. Baby, it's cold outside. Where are we at on that, Will? So out, bro. The conversation about that weird ass song I was just talking about started with Baby It's Cold Outside. I was like, this has gotta be the cringiest Christmas song. Somehow it's number two to this other one now. But yeah, you put that on, like it comes on on the shuffle and you immediately grab your phone in 2021. Okay. 10 years ago, Lauren told me about this. Mm -hmm. And she was way ahead of the curve and said, have you ever listened to the lyrics of that song? I'm like, yeah, it's a fine song. Like who really cares? She's like, it's kind of rapey. It's kind of rapey, man. And sure enough, you kind of listen to it. What's in this drink? And you're just like, oh, <laughs> um, don't something about hurting his pride. Like, what? What are we? Why are we getting into that? Um, the movie, the Christmas movie that's on Netflix right now. It's called Love Hard, and it's a mix between that they did the title, the mix between um, Love Actually and Die Hard. Okay, I'm interested. The, Look up the lyrics to the revamped Baby It's Cold Outside, the 21st century <laughs> consent version of that song. It's the best, like that movie itself was just kind of meh, it's whatever, but they did this version, like this duet of it in, in the movie, and it's incredible. Go look up the lyrics right now, regardless of how you feel about that song in general, but it was very funny and very well done considering what everybody has been talking about with that song for the last few years. But Good on Lauren for not having you having any, <laughs> any takes on Twitter about that song like four or five years ago. Good for her for being ahead of the curve. Yeah, we punted on that one. Uh, <laughs> let's go. Jesse Folly says, most underrated Christmas song and my personal favorite is Silver Bells. And, and the best of all Christmas music is Pentatonics? I don't know that one. Pentatonics. That's, That's one of those things that I probably... Yeah, that's okay. Because we got, I think we got another comment about that, and I wasn't sure what that was. We'll have research. Will, can you look that up to see if there's something that jogs the memory 
of pentatonics yeah so that is. it looks like they are just a group that does different christmas songs and they do like pop songs as well but yeah it seems like they do these like produce like kind of modern uh christmas songs okay i'm open to that mm-hmm. i'm open to that you can go a lot of different ways with christmas with christmas music in general sometimes i'm in the mood for some bing crosby Sometimes you know you just want to go back some nat king cole and then every once in a while, you want to turn on a little bit of Straight No Chaser. Shout out to Indiana University, the acapella group there. A little bit different than Here Comes Trouble, but not much different. <laughs> Please tell me you were in the acapella group. Hard pass. Okay. When saw them freshman year, though. Really good show. Really good show. And then the person in the row ahead of me was freaking out like it was, oh my God, like it was <laughs> Jesus Christ on stage. You would have never known the difference between those two. Kind of ruined it for the rest of us. Kind of had to tell her, hey, hey, you're ruining this. Why don't you just take a chill pill? But right? this is, in fact, an acapella group at the university. That is not Michael Jackson. We're all having a good time. But They're national. Like, they're, they're a big deal. People have heard of Straight No Chaser. That's, that's a real thing. Mm-hmm. And they have, like, if you listen to just Christmas music on Pandora, there's a decent chance that a Straight No Chaser song will come up. So they're, they're very well respected nationally. But, yeah, to that level, you're like, all right, let's... Style it back here. We're talking about guys making instrument sounds with their mouth. All right, like let's. You're not wrong. Anyway, big fan of Pitch Perfect though. Anyways, let's go to oh this one's okay. Ryan Donahue says best song is Last Christmas hands down. My favorite Christmas game is seeing how long it takes before I hear it on the radio. Latest I've made it is December fifteenth. Oh, that's like. That's soon here, coming up. Um, and then two, Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer is the worst. I don't need death in my Christmas songs. <laughs> and then a hard yaw on Mariah, on Mariah early in the season, but hard nah after about 100 plus listens. Mm-hmm. And also Ryan adds, Christmas music usually comes on as Thanksgiving dinner gets cleaned up. Honorable mention to the Adam Sandler Hanukkah song, that always hits. A lot of fair points in there. Mm-hmm. I think that Last Christmas, catchy, kind of unique. If you're going to be a Christmas song in this day and age, you got to have a little bit of something that's kind of unique to, to last. And, and I say this age, like that's an 80s song, so I don't even know what I'm talking about by saying that. But um, I feel like I hear that song every single time I turn on Pandora. If you're making it to December 15th, you're doing it just by listening to um, just by like the radio in your car, I'm assuming, because there's no way you can turn on Christmas music and Pandora and get that deep into the into the holiday season and not hear that song. Do not that go song to a mall. Right. <laughs> the minute you walk into a mall, it is over with for you, buddy. Yes, absolutely, it is. Uh, let's go. And I actually don't hate Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. Sorry, sorry if that's like the second grader in me who thought that song was kind of funny and cute. Um, as for me and Grandpa, we still believe. That's <laughs> wasn't ready for that. That's a song that's like it's nice. See, it's nice to have one or two of those songs in like the fifty song playlist. You know what I'm saying? Make you kind of laugh, make you kind of give you some levity. Throw that in there with the Bing Crosby. If every song was like that, like if we're going for like one, of, like I couldn't get behind like the meme, like the the comedy Christmas albums. Like after one run through of that, I'd be done. But you throw one of those funnier, lighthearted ones in there. I like it. Daniel Priest says best Christmas song, Silent Night. Ooh. Classic. Can't go wrong with that. The worst. Meli Kaliki Maka. Come on, man. There's worse. I think there's worse. And the Mariah Carey, Daniel says, yay. The game is ya or nah. All right, Daniel, let's get, no, I'm kidding. 
Uh, and then Daniel also says, the day after Thanksgiving while putting up decorations is when Christmas music usually comes on. Can't go wrong with Silent Night. I think a song like, I can only say it if I sing it. Is that weird? Meli Kaliki Maka. Um, yeah, it's not English, so I feel like that's I feel like that's easy. Yeah, yeah. I'm surprised. I don't even know if this is the correct spelling that Daniel put in here. I'm just gonna assume it is. Right. Not gonna try and sound that one out. Um, that's that song's all right. It's not bad. I, worst Christmas song. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I'd go there. Yeah, it's just chill. That's the thing. It's just chill. It's hard yeah. to like. I couldn't be angry at that song. You know what I'm saying? There are some songs that are out there, but that one I'm just kind of like whatever about. Uh, let's go to this one from J.R. Pettyjohn. All right. Uh, JR says, best Christmas song is Christmas Shoes, in parentheses. It's a good song with a good story. The worst song is Christmas Shoes. It makes me cry. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> so, all right, that's a lot. And then Mariah Carey, yeah, just don't overdo it. And then usually starts listening to Christmas music after Thanksgiving, but no earlier than November 1st. Yeah, I can't quite get there to the, the mid-November thing. Nah, just... Let's, let's wait until Thanksgiving, all right? Let's let's pump the brakes on that, in my opinion. But kind of get why why people want to listen to it. Puts them in a better mood all the time. I'm at least a little bit more open-minded to that now than I was maybe like five to ten years ago. I'm not going to tell people that that's a, as offensive as liking a Christmas story. Wow. A little bit different. Though. Just <laughs> anyway, yeah. Though I, I think I think the way to do it, man, is you got to pick like a date that it's like if you just OD on Christmas from this date forward, you're gonna be happy. Because it's like for me, when I'm started a little bit earlier, around this time, I started to kind of get sick of everything. This year, we like like I said, we had this party to get ready for. So like early last week, we really started like got our tree, got everything. I was I think this is about the perfect time where it's like I can have it on repeat for at least like a couple weeks and it not be too much. But if I if I had started like you know what I'm saying mid. Uh, November, I think I would have been tired of it by now. You can't overdo Christmas. You can't. Mm-hmm. You're going to be at that point where it finally comes around, you're just burnt out, and you're just kind of ready to move on from everything by the time Christmas Eve rolls around. Can't do that, yeah. yeah. Can't do that. Dex Kendall says, best song. <laughs> Deck the Club by Yin Yang Twins. Not up for debate. <laughs> okay. Worst song. Worst song is anything Pentatonix. So we got some takes, some back and forth takes on this one as well. Maybe I should have did that instead of Mariah Carey. Uh, Dex also says Mariah Carey's song, if I hear it more than one time, that's too much. And Dex starts listening to Christmas music on Christmas. Get some later responses than, okay. I, I'm with that. than yeah. I thought here. Uh, let's, we'll save the Mariah Carey debate for the end. So we got some takes there. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go with... Paige Cooper says, tie between This Christmas by Donny Hathaway and Hard Candy by Hard Candy Christmas by Dolly, by Dolly Parton. Okay. Don't know those as well. I haven't gotten into the country Christmas a ton. And I know like Dolly Parton's got a ton of great Christmas classic hits. Even Garth has some good Christmas moments. It's almost like if you put out a country album at some point and you're not doing Christmas, what are you really doing? Garth needs to put his catalog on streaming services. I'm sick of that, dude. You mean, what's wrong with just having his videos and songs show up on uh, watching 60-year-old men dance to it with some like techno remix of it with an 18-year-old kid? See, that that's the problem. Say that, if but. you don't introduce your kids to Garth Brooks early, it might sneak up on them like it did to, like it did to Walker Howard. I bet he wishes that Garth Brooks was on Spotify so he would have been pr- more prepared for that moment. Connor, thank you. 
Brian Kelly danced to that song in the way that I think most people would. The difference is he was on camera for it. Oh yeah. <laughs> I, you saw my take on that. I put like the like the the meme guy like crying like behind the smiling face. It was like he's dancing with a five star quarterback. What a loser! I'm like, we got the number one quarterback in the class. Y'all told me Florida was getting this guy. I'm not sad. Call it cringe all yeah. you want. <laughs> you can dance like an idiot if you're getting five star quarterbacks. Exactly. Get, listen, hit the nay nay, bro. I don't care. <laughs> Uh, let's get back on track here. We got oh, so many. Sorry for skipping so many of these. There's a lot of really good ones. Um, Jonathan Mason says, best song, That Spirit of Christmas by Ray Charles gets me every time. It's the song playing in Christmas Vacation when Clark Griswold gets trapped in the attic. Mm -hmm. And Jonathan agrees with us here. Worst song is Baby It's Cold Outside. Uh, not just any version though, the <laughs> Jessica Simpson, Nick Lachey version. Oh, just buddy, I forgot that existed. Thank you for that. Nick Lachey has not aged in 25 years. Now he's had work done. There's no doubt about it. But whatever happened to Jessica Simpson? What's she up to right just now? I think she's just thick with two C's now. And like, uh, sorry, you, you got to... The, the over 30 crowd, that just zit, zoomed right past him, Will. Yeah, no, I mean, he's just, you know, if you're, if you're like thick in a good way, I think, she just, I think she just embraced her life as a thick queen. I think she just looks very different than she used to, but good for her. Good for her. Good for her. Hopefully she's doing well. Um, let's go to Caleb Tillman. Um, all right, Caleb, we're going to disagree on some stuff here. Caleb says the best song is I Want a Hippopotamus for Christmas. The worst is Wonderful Christmas Time. It sounds like they're performing a cult ritual and someone walks in, so they switch to Christmas. Not wrong. Again, there are no wrong answers here. Caleb also says, Big Nay on All I Want for Christmas is You. And then he says, We start decorating our house after we get home from Thanksgiving. And that's when the Christmas music starts in our house, not a second sooner. Okay, that part's fine. All I want is a hippopotamus for Christmas. If I had to pick the worst, I think that might be it. Of the non-Alvin and the Chipmunks Christmas songs. That's pretty bad. That's pretty bad. I've always wondered, who keeps that on when it comes on their radio? You know? Now you know. That's the, that's the beauty of the internet, Connor. You know that person now. It's like the, the nine-layer salad that shows up at the holiday party. Who's eating that? Who's eating that? I just want to know. All right. Caleb, that's perfectly fine. Like what you like. The let's let's get to this. Okay. All I want for Christmas is you. Is what the kids would call a bop. Thanks. Every time that comes on, if you're not kind of bobbing your head a little bit, got the toe tapping, singing along, maybe not out loud because you don't want to embarrass yourself and because you don't want to necessarily get to those high notes that Mariah gets to, you're probably lying if you're not doing one of these things or if you're saying you're not doing one of these things. Mariah in every single song that she has ever done likes to do the I'm Mariah Carey and I have to hit this note that nobody else can get to mm -hmm. at the very end of the song just to let you know. And it's there in this song. And every single time that you inevitably go for it when you're singing along with All I Want for Christmas is You for the fifth time that day that you've heard it, you realize, oh, she does this better than I do it. I will listen to that song any time it comes on the radio. I won't change it. I think it's as catchy as a Christmas song as you can ever have. Although I will say 
Kelly Clarkson's underneath the tree, rapidly rising, rapidly rising. Kelly Clarkson, excellent Christmas voice. Can't get enough Kelly Clarkson. Gonna need to listen to more Kelly Clarkson in the next week and a half here, leading up to Christmas, because I'm kind of just getting around to some of her stuff. That good. But Mariah, come on. She was built for this. That voice and the Jimmy Fallon video is second to none. Come on. Oh, yes. No, my favorite meme, like modern meme, is like where Halloween ends and like Mariah Carey like wakes up from some kind of cryogenic chamber and it's like, oh, Mariah Carey season, Christmas season. I love those so much. And like, yeah, hey man, Mariah Carey's um, high notes are only intimidating if you understand how pitch works or are aware of it ever. And I'm not. So I just, I just be singing monotone off key all day doing little <laughs> just if you're gonna be bad be loud bad that's the way i do it it's like if you can't be good be loud bad because it's funny i think that's all 20 years from now we're still gonna be listening to it yep and that's kind of crazy and i didn't realize that it had the rise that it did through love actually but and they, they also kind of tweaked the end of it that's when it had its resurgence so to speak the downloads on itunes hit like a record number after that movie came out and then everybody started downloading it all of a sudden and it kind of had this this new weird life. Listen, Almost bowling, like buyouts, rom-coms. Connor, expert at all three. <laughs> Love actually is, a, is an elite rom-com. <laughs> it truly is. It is not just an elite Christmas movie, it is an elite rom-com. There are people that have probably listened to the last two pods that, are, that we've done and thought, my opinion of Connor is so much less than what it was before. If you didn't know by now, I don't know how you made it this far. If you if you were wondering how I felt about All I Want for Christmas is You, you don't really know me. Right. What's a thrilling rush? And I saw somebody on here had, um, who was it? Somebody, oh yeah, Michael Dark had NSYNC's uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. Mm -hmm. And he put it in here, it's never, it's never skipped. Um, when it has when he when it comes up on his phone or it's on shuffle on his iPod something like that, and that song is one of those like it just kind of comes on you just don't really think about it. We had I think so the other day two non Mariah Christmas Mariah Carey Christmas songs of all I want for Christmas is you that weren't remakes of that song one of which was by NSYNC another by Kelly Clarkson and they came on back to back on our Pandora hmm. like. Have, have we run out of lyrics for Christmas songs? We've run, have we reached movie this point? ideas and song ideas, buddy. They're all gone. You got to pick an existing one. Goodness gracious! Is that why the NFT business is booming? They just got to come up with a new thing right now. Next, figuring it out topic NFTs. <laughs> Let's continue with the with the Christmas theme and uh, and figuring it out. I like the direction that we've gone so far. Mm -hmm. Had a lot of feedback. A lot of feedback on the. Uh, the, the Christmas movie discussion, I imagine we'll have some takes on the Christmas song discussion as well. We have some awesome interviews lined up this week, and we're gonna have awesome interviews for the next, next few weeks here, even during this time where we don't have games. I am so fired up about our next two especially here. We're recording Thursday this week, and so that'll come out Friday morning. Somebody that I've wanted to have on for a while, for a bit, mm -hmm. that uh, is making his long overdue return to this here podcast. So we're gonna, we're gonna have that person on and we're gonna recap some early signing period things as well. If you have not, leave us a five-star review, subscribe, go subscribe to our newsletter, Saturday.Football. Go subscribe to College Football Uncensored and Saturday Lives Forever, wherever you get your podcasts. 
join the Facebook group, hear your name read on air with figuring it out for Bold and Brash. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.